0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: I think it's worth reminding people that You know, we know that 1066, we've said, is the the decisive date. But people at the time didn't know that. You know, they didn't know that the Norman Conquest might have been just a three-year blip. That was Mark Morris talking about the Norman
2: Conquest.
3: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello, and welcome to our second podcast of October 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. 950 years ago tomorrow... On the 14th of October 1066, Duke William of Normandy defeated the forces of English King Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings. It's one of the best-known dates in English history, heralding the end of Anglo-Saxon rule and the start of the Norman era. To get the lowdown on these dramatic events, we spoke to historian Mark Morris, author of an acclaimed popular account of the Norman Conquest. Putting the questions to him was our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn.
4: So, Mark, obviously we're coming up to the 950th anniversary of what I think it's fair to say is probably the most iconic date in English history. The most
0: important date, perhaps.
4: (laughs) Well, arguably. So why do you think 1066 and the Battle of Hastings was such a pivotal moment?
0: Well, um... I think is the most important date in English history because it sees the most change. I mean, every historical question really reduces to what changed and what stayed the same. And 1066 is one of those occasions where history just speeds up enormously. Um, And you mentioned the Battle of Hastings. Of course, the Battle of Hastings is totally decisive because it's a clash of Harold Godwinson, the new king of England and William, Duke of Normandy. And Harold, as everyone knows, dies with or without an arrow in the eye. But the fact that Harold dies... And William wins at Hastings is really just the beginning, um, because what follows in the, particularly in the next five years, but increasingly towards the end of William's reign is that the ruling elite of old England. The Anglo-Saxon ruling class is swept more or less completely away um, in nine out of 10 cases with the top 8000 or so people. They are replaced with continental newcomers, mostly Normans, but also their fellow continental travellers from elsewhere in France. And the Normans, or the Continentals, and the Anglo-Saxons have very different ideas about the way society should be governed. So there are very obvious cases, like castles. England, before 1066, had only a tiny handful of castles that themselves had been built by Frenchmen, French friends of Edward the Confessor, the old English king. But by the time William dies in 1087, England is full of hundreds of castles, um, you know, from from the Welsh marches all the way to the east coast, up as far as Northumbria. Um, And that's just one very evident example today of the way the landscape changed. Um, So, I mean, these are things we can go on to unpack, you know, that there's a change in attitudes, there's a change in architecture, there's a change in law, there's a change obviously in language, the Normans speak French, and whereas the Anglo-Saxons have spoken Old English. And that's probably today the greatest lasting legacy of the conquest is the language we're talking in now is a hybrid created by the events of 1066. So it has very long term effects and very devastating effects in the immediate term.
4: Mm -hmm. So let's rewind a little bit. Uh How do we reach the point of Hastings? Can you kind of give us a brief timeline of... 1066 and the key turning points that had led to that decisive moment
0: well in in, in simplest terms that what happens in 1066 is a succession dispute you know it's a, 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 who who is going to inherit the crown from the elderly edward the confessor who has been king of england since 1042 so we're almost a quarter of a century on and edward has had a a, a relatively stable 24-year rule and and relatively peaceful ruler's as king. But the thing, the problem that has dogged him as time has worn on is he doesn't have a direct heir, doesn't have any children of his own. So increasingly, the succession question looms. And uh, according to English sources, what happens in his dying moments? he's very unwell by the end of 1065, he dies on the 5th of January, 1066, and in his dying moments, we're told by English sources, he nominates or bequeaths the crown to his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, Earl of Wessex. According to Norman sources, he'd done a similar thing 15 years beforehand in 1051. Uh, William, we know for certain, had crossed the channel to England in 1051 or 1052, um, and according to Norman sources, at that point, he had nominated William as his successor.
4: And do you think we'll ever know who he nominated, if he nominated anyone? Or does it even matter? No,
0: I, d- I mean, I think um, w- there's no way of knowing because obviously these are conversations that take place behind closed doors. I mean, particularly in Harold's case, um, this is a deathbed scene with only a handful of people present. Almost all of them, Team Godwin, you know. Uh, so, um it's very easy in those circumstances. You can think of other examples of kings or rulers dying. And, of course, it's only the closest confidants that are at the bedside. And then the succession is stitched up. Um, Harold is clearly very, very powerful and very popular in it by 1066. Um, so in, in that sense, it scarcely mattered what Edward said. You can come out and say, well, the king said this or he said that. Um in William's case, uh, no, we'll never know for certain. It's, it's certainly credible, um, I think, that Edward the Confessor um, would have wanted William to succeed him because of his upbringing. And he spent a quarter of a century in Normandy in foreign exile, being raised from his early teens to, his, to middle age uh, at the Norman court. So everything he has, his life in a sense, he owes to, to Norman generosity. Um, and he also had very good reasons to despise his his English family and his Danish in-laws because his mother had um abandoned him and taken up with uh, his father's supplanter king Canute um his future father-in-law uh, Earl Godwin father of harold had arranged, orchestrated the murder of Edward's full brother, Alfred, in 1036. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's genuine bitter resentments on, uh, fr- from Ed- on, from Edward's point of view um, against letting it go to the Godwins. Um, but in a sense, this is, this is all speculation. Um, the bottom line, as I've said, is by the time you get to January 1066, um, Harold is in a very powerful position. His brothers are earls of East Anglia and the Midlands, or at least the West Midlands. Um, and he is the, he is the, the leader of, of the strongest party in England.
4: So is it fair to say that really the English throne was Harold's to lose?
0: Um, Harold's Harold's weakness is the, is the, the lack of a, a strong hereditary claim. You often read people saying, well, the Anglo-Saxon king, kingship was elective. Well... It was elective in 1066. And that's why Harold is very keen to say, look, how, look how much support I've got. You know, look how quickly I was crowned. But if you actually look back at the previous two centuries, it's always been kept in the same two dynasties. It's been kept in the old, old English dynasty since the time of Alfred. And it, in, in the uh, 11th century, it's been complicated by the arrival of uh, the Vikings led by Knut. So it, it, it back, goes back and forth between Knut and his sons and the old English dynasty. But it's been father-son or father-brother or father-nephew inheritance in the same family. There's no sense in which this is, uh, you know, anyone could throw their hat into the ring as long as they've got enough votes. So... Um, Harold is in a strong position because he has lots of popular backing, but he's, he's uh, got a, a weak position in terms of his, you know, his family are just the most powerful Anglo-Danish family in the kingdom. Um, and he does have this problem that on the other side of the channel, there is a very successful uh, warrior duke who thinks that it is his God-given right to wear that crown. So he knows he's going to be in for a fight the moment he lays hands on the crown.
4: But there was also a third claimant as well, harold hardrada so perhaps it's worth talking about his influence, yeah well,
0: harold hardrada is someone I, I i often leave out of initial discussions because he didn't clearly didn't feature on anyone's radar in january 1066 um you'll often you know see books that talk about you know this, this sort of three-way dispute but it seems clear to me from having looked at all the evidence for um you know 1065 1066 and in th- indeed the 1050s that there was no looming scandinavian threat on the horizon um what happens in 1066 is uh, to sort of skip through that the 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 first half of that year is william immediately declares that he's going to invade you know he immediately gets papal blessing very early in the year and starts assembling uh, an armada of ships so it's very obvious to People in England, because there's merchants crossing the Channel the whole time and, and spies from Harold, etc. The, 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 the Normans are doing this very publicly. They're building a great armada, they're building, borrowing, bu- buying ships in readiness for invasion. And Harold from the spring starts doing the same. He starts building up a very large army and defensive naval force in the Channel. So all the military buildup is on each side of the Channel. There's no preparation whatsoever to suggest that uh, uh, an invasion is expected or feared from the northeast, What happens in late August or early September 1066 is the Vikings led by Harold Hardrada come crashing out of left field.
4: So he was a bit of a wild card.
0: I think so. I mean, I think it's just put into his head by Harold's exiled younger brother, the sort of the lone wolf Tostig. Um, who is Harold Godwinson's Harold, yes, sorry, Harold's, Harold Godwinson's younger brother, who he had a major falling out with the previous year, who was then sent into exile. He's looking for a way of revenging himself on his brother and seeks Scandinavian help. But I think, you know, Vikings uh, seems to me can um, put together naval forces with, with, with greater speed And Dukes of Normandy, who are basically doing land-based warfare. So the Vikings can kind of fit out a fleet fairly quickly. And, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for 1066 describes the arrival of this Scandinavian fleet this Norwegian fleet, as they arrived unware, you know, unexpectedly. And the Norman sources, uh, Aldrich Vitalis, for example, says exactly the same, that it takes both the other protagonists, uh, Harold Godwinson and William, completely by surprise. And that's borne out by Harold's reaction. He has to rush up north, reassembling his forces um, before, as you know, defeating Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge on the 25th of September. Um, so this is this is an essential part of the narrative in the weeks leading up to Hastings is Harold's famous rush north to, to, to um, destroy this Viking foe. And then what happens a week after, um, give or take his victory at Stamford Bridge is he's tapped on the shoulder and told you won't believe this. But the Normans have have arrived at Pevensey. So he has to rush 300 miles south in order to combat William.
4: So really, do you think it was this kind of um, double attack that was Harold's downfall? Do you think if he hadn't been so weakened, I know this is all conjecture, but if Mm. he hadn't been weakened by taking on Hardrada in Stamford Bridge, he might have stood more of a chance at Hastings?
0: I think so. I mean, it's very difficult to sort of uh, do this kind of what-if history, Mm -hmm. even though this isn't sort of wild, speculative, you know, what-if history. But um, that would have... If, if not exhausted his troops, because, you know, they can recover within a day or so. But if it hadn't exhausted his troops, it would have depleted them because both these battles, Hastings and Stamford Bridge, we know, were extremely bloody. Um, you know, you don't sort of fight the Vikings. The Vikings don't really do negotiated surrenders, you know, so, and nor did the Anglo-Saxons for that matter. So um, a lot of his very skilled warriors would have been depleted. Um, I don't think it's particularly due to exhaustion. I mean, you often re- hear, hear it said or, or read that um, Harold's troops when they got to Hastings were exhausted by because they would had to march south. There's almost a sense of a forced march from Yorkshire. I think it, because on the morrow of um, Stamford Bridge, William had no idea that the, the, the Normans were about to land the logical thing for him to do with an army of five or ten thousand men who are all in need in need of provisions and what have you is to dismiss them is to say well we've 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 destroyed hardrider now so back to your farms back to the shires well done the, the the beast is slain it's only a few days later when he's still sort of doing a mopping up operation in york and probably celebrating or burying his dead brother Tostig, who also died at Stamford bridge it's only at that point he's told now you have another dragon to slay in the south and at that point he's hastily reassembling, calling up new people from the Shire. So his resources are depleted. He himself may well be um, exhausted. But all the sources tell us that Harold's mistake in 1066 was he was too precipitate. He rushed down trying to take William by surprise. And it would have undoubtedly been to his advantage if he'd just paused for breath and waited for more reserves to arrive. We are told explicitly by at least two chroniclers that he set out before his whole host had been assembled. Um, That had worked very well for him on previous occasions. He'd surprised the King of Wales in uh, 1062 or 1063. He had surprised Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge. So, you know, catching people unawares is Harold's, one of Harold's top tactics. go-to. It, it is, but it, it, it backfires uh, in, in mid-October 1066 because the Normans are suddenly aware of his coming and, um, and surprise him at battle.
4: So do you think that was more of a tactical misjudgment or perhaps an overconfidence and an underestimation of William's Norman forces?
0: Perhaps both. I think, I mean, the, the thing that is worth remembering about Harold and William is that William and Harold had met The pair had met in 1064, possibly 1065, more likely 1064. The events shown on the first half of the Bayer Tapestry is Harold's visit to Normandy. And Harold thinks perhaps he has the measure of William, perhaps thinks that William, because everything William's done up to that point, more or less, has been um, attritional warfare. You know, you raid across the border into Brittany or you raid into Maine and you destroy crops and you maybe take the odd castle. But it's not war to the death. What's unusual in, for William in 1066 is not only is the invasion an insanely risky undertaking that could end in disaster by being wrecked at sea, or it's the fact that he is absolutely going for broke. He has to kill Harold in that encounter because this isn't this isn't something they can negotiate. You know, they can't share the crown; they can't have half the kingdom each.
4: As you say, it was it was an incredibly risky strategy, and a lot was at stake for William. Why was England worth all that hassle and that risk?
0: Well, if you take a reductive view of it, I mean, as, as indeed many of the people involved in these invasions would have done, um, England is an extremely rich country, an extremely well-regulated and, 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 and well-taxed country. So it's known to be wealthy. Um, and therefore, many people, particularly from Scandinavia, where they've been doing they've been using the age old Viking model of, you know, we can get lots of shiny stuff and go home and, and, and live the good life. Many people, too, in William's army were mercenaries recruited by precisely that promise. You know, if you if you come with me, I will make you rich. Whether William himself thinks uh, Normandy is not enough, I must have England as well. Um, and, you know, because uh it will make me an even richer and more powerful man. That's possible. But it does go against everything he's done up to that point, because up to that point, his warfare has been, by and large, cautious and non-expansionary. Um, and I think it's it makes more sense of what we know of the man's personality. We know he was extremely religious. He'd been under the tutelage of one of the most celebrated scholars in Europe, Lamb Frank of Beck, since boyhood. I think that he thought this has been promised to me, you know, by Edward the Confessor, by my kinsman, and it is my God-given right to wear that crown. Um, and you can see again in the sources, the Norman sources prior to the conquest, you can see people objecting to this. They don't want to risk all their—they they don't want to risk their—not just everything they've accomplished up to that point, but their lives on what is seen as being way too risky uh, an enterprise. You know, um, they there are. Uh, I mean, admittedly, in some cases, somewhat later sources say things like, you know, why should we risk everything by committing to the waves and the weather? You know, Um, England is a is a very strong naval power in the 11th century. England has, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, naval experience. They've been fighting the Vikings on and off for centuries. So their warfare is very geared up to stopping seaborne invaders. Um, The Normans don't have anything like that heritage by 1066. So um, it is, I keep repeating this, but I think it's worth emphasizing, it is insanely risky. And that makes me think that William's motivation was, um, whatever we think of it, that he thought he was right. He thought God was on his side. And of course, that's, if that's, that's in a way um, self-evident by the fact that he's willing to commit to battle because to commit to battle is also very, very risky. Commanders ever since Roman times uh, and and, uh, Roman writers have advised, whatever you do, above all else, don't commit your troops to battle, because even if you think you're really, really strong, anything could go wrong. You know, your commander could die. It sounds silly, but battle is very, very risky. the, 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 um, The chances of something Random happening in battle—it's not the sensible way to make war. If you want to make war, you know, and you have greater resources, then go after the soft targets. You know, harry the countryside, make you know, make your enemy feel the pain. You know, attack in the softest places. Don't meet head on, because anything could happen. Um, So I think the fact that William, in particular, is willing to to chance that suggests that in his head he thought God is on my side and God will vindicate me in this clash of arms.
4: So at. when when the two forces met at Hastings, what do you think were the deciding points in that battle? As you say, so much was up to chance and um, Harold Godwinson had already come in with a pre-weakened force. But in the battle itself, what do you think was the deciding factor?
0: Well, there's there's ultimately the deciding factor, of course, is that Harold dies. That's sort of forgiven. This, and this is the one thing that we can all still agree on, I think, mm-hmm. is and, that Harold died.
4: And it's very much that, if, you're, if Harold de- dies, there's nobody to take his place. Then no. There's no one to fill that figurehead role.
0: There's no... Exactly. I mean, there, there are people that might fight on around the dead king, you know, and go down with the sinking ship, as it were. But um, until they regroup and sort out the political fallout of that and perhaps elect a new king, which is what they do in the weeks that follow. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there. I mean, just to go back to the battle for a second... Um, The battle was 950 years ago, as you say. Even battles that were fought 100 years ago or 150 years ago, historians are still arguing over the course of the action because eyewitnesses, even eyewitnesses, even participants disagree because battles are confusing. So we have very little hope of pinning down precisely what happened at Hastings. We have the Bayer tapestry, and we have a description in a contemporary poem, a poem, which is the problematic part, a poem um, uh, called the... um, the, the Carmen, the song of the Battle of Hastings. We also have a description by William's biographer, um, William of Poitiers, who admits he wasn't there. He's got it from secondhand sources. So precisely what went on, we don't know. Um, as I say, Harold's forces, as you said, were pre-weakened um, and, and, more importantly, insufficient. The The Um, A very distinctive thing about the battle, a very unusual thing about the battle, is that the English stand to fight on foot and form themselves up into a shield wall, and the Norman elite, they ride into battle, so they're a cavalry force. So that's very unusual. Contemporaries recognise that this was an odd-looking battle. It's not cavalry versus cavalry, nor is it shield wall clashing with shield wall. It's a new a new type of attack clashing with a very sort of uh, an old school. Force.
4: So the cavalry were the the modern.
0: The cavalry side was the of sort of modern continental way of doing warfare. The English, of course, had horses, but they didn't ride them into battle. And there are occasions where, just before the Battle of Hastings, where you can see continental friends of Edward the Confessor experimenting with cavalry. There's a, a chap called um, Earl Ralph, who's a, a nephew of Edward the Confessor, who's made Earl of, the, of a of a region in Western England, uh, fighting against the Welsh. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, you know, of that particular encounter, that the English lost very badly because, you know, it says before a spear was thrown, um, the the English were defeated or fled because they had been made to fight on horseback. So clearly, cavalry tactics were something that the, the English considered sort of very newfangled and unreliable. And the other thing to say about Hastings is, these two forces were very well matched because most battles might be decided in a couple of hours. Hastings goes on all day. What seems to have been the decisive point is at some stage, the Norman line started to collapse. And there are all there are various versions of how that came to happen. Uh, it was feared William was dead. That's said by the literary sources. Uh, you can see that on the Bayer Tapestry, William riding along with his helmet raised to say, I'm still alive, to try and re to try and um, re-establish his line of attack. Seeing the Normans run away for whatever reason, some of the English who were on higher ground on a hill at battle broke away from the shield wall and pursued them down the hill. So that causes the English line to be compromised. And by the time the Normans, once the Normans were able to regroup, they were able to start picking holes in the shield wall. So that seems to have been the tipping point of the battle. Um, But as we've already said, I've already said, the the, the truly decisive thing is that Harold is killed. If Harold had, even very late in the day, thought, hey, the shield wall is, is compromised, I best retreat... They could have fought another, another battle in a week's time. I mean, if you look at 50 years earlier when the English are fighting Cnut and the Vikings, that's what they do. I mean, they have half a dozen battles before that clash is decided. Um, you know, you, you, all you have to do is settle for a draw, run away, and wait for more troops to, to rise Harold has that advantage. He's king of England. He can lose 99 battles and still be king, um, whereas William needs a very quick victory because he's an invading force. The minute uh, uh, or the longer he leaves it, uh, his troops are going to run out of supplies. If they need more supplies, they're going to have to spread out and forage to get to supplies, which makes them vulnerable. So he needs a quick encounter. And Harold is very, very obliging in giving him one.
4: <laughs> so, of course, the, the popular legend or myth, as it were, is that Harold gets an arrow through the eye, mm. as you will have heard hundreds of millions of times. How much stock should we set by that?
0: Not much. I mean, it's 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 one of those, uh, the answer is like some of many of the other questions we've, we've, we've discussed, we'll never know. Um, the only contemporary source, truly contemporary source, that suggests he has an arrow in the eye is the biotapestry. Tapestry. Um, and people will already be sort of shouting if they're listening to this, saying the biotapestry Tapestry shows nothing of the sort, it shows a man with a spear what precisely the bio tapestry shows in harold's death scene is much debated is it harold with an arrow in the eye or is it the man a few feet to his right being hacked down by a horse is the figure with the arrow is the figure with harold written above his head actually a man with an arrow in the eye or if you look at the stretch uh, the stitch marks rather uh, to the to the uh, left of his hand was he actually a man holding a spear who has been adapted by french restorers in the 19th century the the debate is endless i mean one of the things that tipped the balance for me in terms thinking well this is this is just ludicrous in terms of evidence is that the Bayer tapestry is not only an artistic source which is problematic it's a it's a it's a you know an artist depiction of events that happened years before but it's also an, an artistic source based on other artistic sources so you can see at various points the tapestry artist borrows from copies illuminated manuscripts at Canterbury where the tapestry was manufactured so you can point to very precise examples of here is Bishop Odo uh, holding a feast before the Battle of Hastings. Oh, look, it's copied from this Last Supper scene. Um, what A similar thing seems to have been going on with Harold's death scene. It seems that um, the tapestry artist may have been copying a biblical scene of the, the, the death of King Zedekiah, who was uh, killed by being blinded. So. It's a very problematic source. There is another contemporary source I've already mentioned, the Song of the Battle of Hastings, that says Harold was hacked to death by a dedicated Norman death squad, which would make perfect sense since William's war aim is Harold must die. The honest answer is we'll never know.
4: Well, either way, arrow or no arrow, Harold died. He definitely died. And that, you say, is a decisive turning point. What transpired after that after Hastings how long does it take for the Normans to really conquer England
0: well it, how long does it take for let's, let's simplify how long does it take for William to be king a couple of months um he expects the English to submit after Hastings and they don't they elect Edgar Ethling, uh, who's a, a, a grand ne- great nephew of Edward the Confessor a lot la- the last remaining member of the Anglo-Saxon dynasty they elect him as king Um, But because the Normans then unleashed this devastating harrying campaign around southeastern England, by Christmas or by early December, the the remaining Anglo-Saxon elite have decided that they ought to surrender. The English, after the Battle of Hastings, had elected uh, a great nephew of Edward the Confessor called Edgar Ethling, the last remaining member of that old English dynasty, uh, a teenage boy. Um, But by early December that year, if not before, they've decided that this is pointless and they have to submit to the Normans who are wasting and ravaging um, southeastern England. So William is crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day 1066. And he clearly hopes at that point that the English having submitted that he will just get on with the business of ruling the country as its new king. But what happens in the years that follow, in the months that follow even, is um, Anglo-Saxon rebellion and insurgency. I think my take on it is the English really don't think they've been seriously conquered in 1066 because they were conquered 50 years earlier by the Vikings and they know what conquest feels like. Uh, In particular, people have their heads chopped off. And William's uh, attitude in the first instance is more lenient than that. Despite all the killing at Hastings in the course of the battle, um, what he does with the survivors, the, the surviving English aristocrats, is he spares them and lets them redeem their lands. He lets them hang on to their lands in exchange for payment, which makes sense if he's saying, you know, I am the legitimate successor to Edward the Confessor. I, I, you know, if you hadn't been so uh, – this is William's point of view, I have to say – if you hadn't been, you know uh, – uh, Tempted to go with the usurper Harold, then we could have all. This could have been a lot less bloody, and we could. Now we can settle down. Harold being dead, you having recognised my right to wear this crown, we can all settle down and be friends. Because it doesn't work out like that. The English are determined not to have William as their duke.
4: Is that uh, so because? King, sorry, is that because he is a foreign figure?
0: I think it's because of Hastings, you know, it's because I think it's very clear um, by, by uh, Harold's ability to push himself forward in 1066 that the, you know, the, the English really don't want anything to do with the Normans. They are not interested in having a Norman duke be their new king. And it's borne out, as I say, in the, uh, the months after 1066 because you get one rebellion after another. You get rebellions in Kent and the Welsh marches and then bigger ones in Exeter and the Midlands and, and in Three times, the north, in 1068 and 1069, there are three consecutive rebellions in northern England, the last supported by a Danish invasion. And I think it's worth reminding people that, you know, we know that 1066, we've said, is the the decisive date. But people at the time didn't know that. You know, they didn't know that the Norman Conquest might have been just a three-year blip. They clearly hoped it would be. And William clearly feared that that was going to happen. By 1069, it looks very, very dodgy for William. You know, this is a, 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 a an overstretched mission. And so what he resorts to by the winter of 1069 is the most notorious act of his career, which is devastating everything north of the River Humber, the, the so-called harrying of the north, realizing that he can't hold Northern England simply by planting castles and and small garrisons in the north. He decides, well, if I can't hold it, I'll make damn sure no one else can hold it. So he reduces it to desert, Um, breaks up his troops, sends them out into the towns and villages to destroy everything, crops, cattle. I mean, I think incidentally, in the first instance, human beings who get in the way and, and object to this. But what really pushes the death toll up is the fact that he's destroyed all the sustenance. So if you if you burn all the barns and slaughter all the animals, then in that winter, people starve to death. And we know that they starve to death in their tens of thousands.
4: I was going to say, if we've got the Battle of Hastings and then these continued rebellions, harrying of the north, the whole nation consumed by conflict... Hmm. You say it's tens of thousands in the Hiring of the North, but in total, can we gauge the loss of life and the total destruction?
0: Uh, we can't. Um, I mean, the, the way we estimate population numbers in this period is Doomsday Book, which is compiled in 1086, which gives us kind of rough and ready figures. Doomsday doesn't cover the whole of the kingdom. It doesn't cover London. doesn't cover Winchester, where we're doing this interview. But um, uh, scholars would, would agree broadly that the population of England in the 11th century is, give or take, about 2 million people. Well, I would think 10% of those people must have perished in William's reign. Um, so it's a huge death toll in percentage terms. Six figures alone we're talking about, well into six figures, just in Yorkshire. So it's a huge, huge um, loss of human life.
4: Well, perhaps it's a good point to mention William himself then and how we maybe should remember him and how he has been remembered down through the years, how he's been reimagined as a figure. Um should we remember him as a kind of modernising, innovating conqueror, an amazing warlord, or should we remember him as a cruel tyrant?
0: I think, you know, the cop-out answer is probably a bit of both. I don't, I don't think he was particularly modernising. Uh, I don't think consciously modernising. Mm-hmm. Um, d- I've done a, a short biography of William for Penguin this year and I tried to come up with some fresh thoughts in the conclusion about his reputation and his character and he was clearly a very skilled warrior um, and I think as, as, as I've already said I think the, the, the most notorious act of his reign even at the time was the harrying and it's not so much that the harrying was an unusual means method of waging war it was absolutely textbook as I've already said medieval warlords had no problem at all with attacking civilian populations if not deliberately targeting the people, then targeting the, the the assets, the crops, the cattle, and demonstrating thereby that the protection of whoever else was claiming to be their ruler, whether it's a local lord who's rebelling or a rival ruler, is not worth having. You ought to have my protection. You can see it being done in 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 you know in the modern age even, you know, in, in you know, more brutalised parts of the world today. People, you know, using that kind of terror to say, You must come under our protection, you know, not not our enemy's protection. It's not worth having that. Um, so that that is par for the course for 11th century warfare. Having said that, that that's the scale on which William harries northern England that shocks contemporaries. It's the, just literally the sheer uh, death toll, the body count that contemporaries found despicable. Um, one one of the things that is curious though about William the Conqueror um, is that if you look at uh, the the best description of his character, I think, and his life is the obituary offered by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle when he dies in 1087. It's, it's very interesting because it's, it's written by an English monk, so it's written by one of the conquered. It's written in English, obviously, and it's apparently an eyewitness. He says, how should we describe this man? We who have lived at his court, and gazed upon him. So it's someone who lived through William's reign Spent some time at his court and very significantly was on the side of the defeated. And he does condemn William for several things. He condemns him for greed. He says he took too much money from the country and with no, you know, not good enough reason in taxes. He condemns him for building castles, which I've already touched upon, but, you know, we tend to forget that castles were absolutely brutal instruments of. Of, of oppression, you know, they they were built by enforced labour. They were real ugly blots on the landscape. They weren't the nice places to go and you know for a, a bank holiday weekend that sold to us now by English Heritage. They were really monstrous impositions. So he built he built castles which were, which sorely oppressed the poor. That's another complaint. Um, he introduced the royal forest. Is uh, another complaint, you know, and and, and introduced very harsh penalties.
4: So he that. essentially wouldn't let people hunt, he made it private land?
0: He made great, he set aside great tracts of land um, for, um, you know, as, as royal hunting preserves and anyone who ventured in and, and, and broke the, this new forest law uh, was punished with mutilation, either blinding or having other bits of their bodies lobbed off. Um so those are the things that the Anglo-Saxon chronicler who'd lived through William's Strain chose to condemn him. And one of the things that's interesting, though, that he doesn't mention, and I know this is an argument from silence, but I still think it's significant, is no contemporary source accuses William of being cruel. Um, and the, that, the reason that's sort of interesting is because it's a it's a charge leveled at him by lots of modern commentators that he was particularly cruel. And he was... You know, in terms of his methods, no more cruel than any other 11th century warrior. I mean, you know, people talk about him lopping off people's hands and feet. Well, that's what people did, it's what Vikings did, it's what Anglo Saxons did. Um, one of the things that is striking about William the Conqueror is, as I've said, after the Battle of Hastings, he sells the Anglo-Saxon survivors back their lands and tries to integrate them into this new regime. So one of the things that's striking about him is he spares his political enemies. He doesn't kill them. If he captures people or if he defeats people, he imprisons them. He might lock them up for a very long time. There are many people who've been rotting in prison for a good long time by the time he dies, but he doesn't execute them. And that's a big shift between what happened after 1066 and the way politics had been done before, which was political killing was okay both in Scandinavian politics and in English politics. So William has this, what we would think of as a more civilised way of doing politics, which is essentially chivalry. Um, After 1066, it is no longer acceptable to just have your enemies round for dinner and then slit their throats when their backs are turned.
4: Why was the emergence of chivalry important? What was the impact of it? it?
0: It totally transforms the way you do politics. I mean, you're not doing politics by blood feud anymore. Um, And it means that it it, it goes hand in hand with certain other sort of socio-economic developments that are ushered in by the conquest. I mean, I've already mentioned castles. In England before 1066 was essentially a land without castles. Well, it's very hard to imprison people and hold them if you don't have strongholds. so, you, you know, you can see in the politics after 1066 that people are locked up for a long time in castles, you know, uh, towers. I mean, William's own sons slug it out for a couple of, ge- a couple of decades. Uh, Henry I eventually capturing his older brother, Robert Kurthose and imprisoning him in Cardiff Castle for, for many, many years. Um, you can't do um, uh, ransoms unless you have uh, a sort of a money economy. Uh, which England did have admittedly before the conquest. So um, chivalry really does, um, you know, change the politics of the British Isles. I mean, one of the major things that it changes is by the, certainly by the mid-12th century, possibly even earlier, and by the 1120s, English people uh, or people who are half English, half Norman, have absorbed these new continental attitudes towards human life. Um, and are looking at their Celtic neighbours, the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish, with this fresh and critical eye and saying, goodness me, these Welsh chaps, you know, they, whenever they come to Hereford, they not only burn the town and the cathedral down to the ground, but they take away the women and children in cages to sell them as slaves um and when we fight these people they fight to the death they glory in it you know they have this kind of attitude that belong that, that you know you see in in the sagas of celebrating you know death and bloodshed whereas by that point in england um the elite were not routinely killing each other it was a taboo and so what that means is the english start to look at the celts and and start to stigmatize them as barbarians they start to say these are people who are not you know, playing by the same set of rules of us. And that ultimately allows, allows the English to go into these regions in the rest of the Middle Ages, in the 12th, 13th centuries and beyond, not only to try and conquer, but in their heads to try and civilise. We're coming to conquer you, but we're also coming to make you better people. You know, that's the attitude.
4: What I find very interesting is that you have two very culturally different sets of people, the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans, and you have the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy swept away, essentially... How long does it take for these two societies to integrate and become one, the English? And how did the Norman ideas then percolate through to the rest of society?
0: That's a good question. It's one I don't normally get to touch on in my talk. Um, I would say surprisingly quickly. Um, I mean, one, one specific example you can see is that, you know early assimilation going on in, in uh, the cloister. In abbeys, because you'll get new Norman abbots appointed, but most English monks staying in place. So there's a sort of a fusion of ideas going on there, which we can see because we have written accounts. So, you know, that, that gives us a sort of uh, uh, an idea of what's going on in that particular corner of society. You can see fusion in architecture quite early on. If you look at Durham Cathedral, which is begun in the 1090s, you can see that's a grand, very grand Norman cathedral. But it has none of the austerity of early Norman architecture. It's, if you, if you know the, the pillars at Durham, they are decorated with anglo-saxon interlace so they have this anglo-saxon influence in in the architecture Um, there is still a great deal of resentment as you move on into the 12th century the early 12th century between the conquerors and the conquered i forget precisely which year i think it's 1106 but say 50 years after hastings the anglo-saxon chronicle uh, it's, it's earlier than 1106, I can't remember the precise date, but it says this was something like the 41st year of Norman rule in England. So there's very much a sense of we are a conquered people. Um, William of Malmesbury famously says in the 1120s that the English England was now a conquered country and foreigners gnawed at its vitals and no Englishman was an earl or a bishop or an abbot. So again, a very strong sense of them and us. But by the time you move into the second half of the 12th century, i.e. getting on for a century, after the Battle of Hastings, of course, everybody involved in that original conflict is dead. Everybody involved in the harrying is long, long since dead. Uh, even I'm talking about even the victors here. Even their grandfathers, you know, are a distant memory. So no one alive can remember or even have been told when they were a child. Um, no one has first-hand knowledge. It becomes a historic event, and by that point, there has been an awful lot of integration because. Not in every case, but by and large, the majority of these men who are coming to England are young men seeking to put down roots, settling down and marrying a nice English girl and therefore creating Anglo-Norman families.
4: So did you have an influx of um, Normans who were lower down the social scale or was it just that you who came over from the continent or was it only the kind of top level and then their ideas are imposed on those who work for them and those who live on their land
0: i think if you are a norman in england you are by definition top level there's no one coming over and saying hello i'm a norman peasant where do i go to plow you know the the bottom level in this new colonial society are anglo-saxons so the people who are coming over from the continent in some cases are william himself and his friends who are already well-established aristocrats but of course what it does is this this shake-up creates a Great opportunity for people who aspire to greatness, you know, who aspire to uh, great lordly wealth and status but are perhaps only operating on the fringes of it or perhaps they're just scrubbed up peasants but have strong right arms and a, and a male shirt and a, and a good sword and a horse they can make themselves an absolute fortune so if you can imagine these kind of adventurers in a or almost like in sort of um 19th century india if you think of you know danny and peachy and the man who will be king you know people who are really on the make but who are very skilled warriors, they can make an absolute killing um, in post-conquest England. There's people rushing to take advantage of this, this new colonial um, enterprise.
4: And so if you were just an Anglo-Saxon, I know this not a typical Anglo-Saxon person, but you're a peasant working on the land, how would you see the Norman influence?
0: I think it depends what kind of peasant you are. I think, in I think for the, as I already said, for the aristocracy, the Norman Conquest is absolutely devastating. I think the aristocracy are the worst hit group because um, they're either killed or displaced entirely. Then there's a group below them, probably about 75% of the population, who are classed as free. Now, in almost every case, their lives are becoming worse off. So if you're a prosperous Anglo-Saxon peasant, uh, a, a churl, um, then... Uh, undoubtedly, your life will be worse in this new society with foreign overlords. Why is that? Why is that? Because Normans are interested in profit. You can see that in Doomsday Book. You can hear it in the complaints of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. They're interested in racking up rents. So you will be holding your land on worse terms. And if you held it freely, perhaps in return, in exchange for a peppercorn rent or a small rent, either your rent is has skyrocketed and you're going to have to be finding more money to satisfy these new parasitical lords, or you are going to be made to do boon work. You're going to be made to work yourself for two or three days a week, whereas you'd formerly not had that obligation. So there's no doubt whatsoever that the conquest makes life worse for the formerly free. Having said that, and this is the essential caveat, for the bottom 15 to 20% of the population, it makes life better because the bottom uh percentage of the population in anglo-saxon england had been slaves um which really meant they were not no better than beasts in the field
4: so those slaves Mm. who were they and how we a lot of people probably don't think of slavery as a as an medieval, English thing. As an English thing no. in the medieval period. Who were those slaves and how how did they, they end up in that status?
0: Were English Anglo-Saxons, since, since their, their their coming to England in the you know the 5th, 6th century, had and, and indeed Scandinavian society had had always had this underclass of slaves, who were people who were either fallen into poverty and had to sell themselves into slavery, or people who had been captured in war, but people who basically were outside the law and were a separate class of people who were. Really considered to be, as I say, legally no better than beasts in the field. They might be. They might have. I mean, if like, if you think of modern slavery, you know, um, they they might have uh, masters who treated them well, if you like, in, in inverted commas, who, you know, made sure they were properly fed and had sufficient shelter. But they had no legal status. They could be sold individually, not not just, you know, oh, you can buy my land and it comes with peasants, which would be true in the later Middle Ages. But you can have this fine, strong uh, slave. They could be sold uh, as agricultural workers. They could be sold...
3: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: As concubines, you know, they had no rights at all. They could be beaten, they could be branded, they could be killed. And legally, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem, it wasn't a crime to kill a slave. It was a sin, but it wasn't a crime. Now, the Normans once upon a time had treated people exactly the same way, because they originally, ancestrally, had been Vikings. But by the time you get to 1066, indeed by the time you get to the start of the 11th century, the Normans had done away with slavery. They had moved on, and like other places in in Western Europe, considered that this was no longer an acceptable way to treat other human beings. Um, So what you find after the conquest is slavery diminishes in England very rapidly as well. It's fallen by, as far as we can judge, 25% the number of slaves by 1086. And by the time you get to the start of the 12th century, it's clearly a thing of the past.
4: So in Anglo-Saxon society, there were definitely losers and there were definitely winners. Yeah.
0: But to be very clear, um unless people think I'm, you know, making a case for the Roman conquest being a good thing, I'm very definitely not. We've already said hundreds of thousands died, maybe 10% of the population, and the majority of the population were worse off in this new colonial society. But it's it's worth I think it's just interesting. Worth um uh emphasizing, because it's not something you'll read in typically in 19th or even 20th century scholarship, that for the very bottom of society, uh, for the slaves who were liberated by the conquest, it made life considerably better.
4: And also, how did it impact on England's relationship with the continent? Did it make it a much more continental nation?
0: It did. I mean, it, it, culturally, it bound it uh, more closely to the continent. So, uh, England has now full of continental style churches. It's full of scholars um, who, are, and indeed aristocrats, uh, I was going to say scholars, bishops, churchmen, but also aristocrats uh, who have estates both sides of the channel. Um, So there's constant movement, much more so than before, across the Channel. And it binds England to the continent of the conquest for the next three centuries, really until the Hundred Years' War. There is always, uh, 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 almost always, a continental link um, between uh, the King of England being Duke of Normandy or Duke of Gascony or Count of Anjou. So it it means uh, the English royal family all the English baronage, and when they go to war with large armies, even the English peasantry are required to fight overseas in a way that previously um, they'd been looking across the North Sea towards Scandinavia. That was both where, you know, the cultural influence came from and also where, the, you know, the enemy lurked. So um, it, it completely wrenches England off its northeastern axis and, and orientates it towards the continent for, for, for the rest of the foreseeable future.
2: That was Mark Morris speaking to Ellie Cawthorne. Mark's book, entitled The Norman Conquest, was published in 2012 in the UK by Hutchinson and in 2013 in the US by Pegasus. Mark is also due to feature in a BBC television series on The Norman Conquest, which is set to air early next year. Meanwhile, you can read a piece from Mark about the legacy of The Norman Conquest in the November issue of BBC History magazine which is on sale now. Also in this month's issue we have articles on Lady Jane Grey, Lenin's famous train journey, Churchill and the atom bomb, the Aberfan disaster and plenty more. You can get hold of our November issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash And now it's time to rejoin Ellie for this week's history news.
4: Ancient links between China and the West go back much further than previously thought, according to new research. It was previously believed that the first European to make contact with a country was Marco Polo in the 13th century. However, new findings now suggest that Westerners may have travelled to China as early as the 3rd century BC. Mitochondrial DNA found in China's westernmost province has revealed that Europeans settled there between 259 and 210 BC, during the reign of China's first emperor. Furthermore, experts have theorised that the famous terracotta army, dating back to the 3rd century BC, may have drawn inspiration from ancient Greek art. No life-sized figurative sculpture predating the terracotta warriors has ever been found in China, leading experts to speculate that a Western artist may have trained local sculptors in the making of the figures. The archaeological work undertaken here is more important than anything in the last 40 years, said the lead archaeologist at the tomb site. We have discovered something more important even than the terracotta army. In other news, archaeologists at Hadrian's Wall in Northumbria have uncovered a haul of more than 400 Roman shoes. Ranging from shoes to fit babies and children, to women's footwear and men's boots, the shoes were found during a dig at the site of Vindolanda, a small but heavily defended Roman fort founded in the first century AD. The find offers an unparalleled demographic census of a community in conflict, said Dr. Andrew Burley, the Vindolanda Trust's director of excavations. The volume of footwear is fantastic, as is its sheer diversity. Meanwhile, a group of historical reenactors are marking the 950th anniversary of 1066 by retracing the steps of defeated Anglo-Saxon King Harold Godwinson in a 300-mile march across England. After defeating a Viking army led by Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge in September 1066, Godwin's army marched 250 miles south to face the invading Norman troops of William the Conqueror at Hastings. Dressed in Anglo-Saxon clothing and armed with weapons, armour and horses, The team from English Heritage started the march in York last month. Unfortunately, the roads on which Harold travelled are all but gone, said Nigel Amos, leader of the march. We will probably end up travelling around 50 miles more than his army needed to, as we wind around B roads. The team plans to reach Hastings by the 14th of October, in order to take part in a reenactment of the iconic battle, with over 1,000 other fighters.
2: Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend, which takes place in York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Simon Sabag Montefiore, and more. Please head to historyweekend.com forward slash York for more details and tickets. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking about the Aberfan disaster, among other things.
3: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.